the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 8th, 2024. 2024 is always already promising to be quite a year when it comes to technology. Apple this morning um, announced that its Vision Pro virtual reality glasses um, will be available uh, in early February. For many people, this represents perhaps of the beginning of our, the birth of our virtual reality age. Um, Apple always seems to be able to take abstract notions and make them real, make them accessible for mainstream consumers. So it's going to be really interesting to see this Vision Pro product. Uh, already this morning, we've talked about the ideal of a world of networked brains where through AI and the networking of virtual reality, um, we will view the world quite differently and we will view ourselves. Even the idea of ourself will become itself uh, problematic. We uh, did a conversation earlier this morning with the Brazilian science fiction writer PJ Caldas. He has a book out, The Girl from Wudang, which imagines a world of digitally connected brains um, and a young woman from China who comes to the West. It's all speculative, of course, but what isn't speculative um, is our medical system and how this is or isn't being impacted by AI, by Vision Pro, and by all the other profound technological changes. Our go-to guy, as regular viewers and listeners of Keenon know, our go-to guy when it comes to imagining the future and being honest about the current realities of American healthcare is Dr. Robert Pearl, a remarkable man. Uh, he ran uh, a large healthcare system in California. He's a professor at Stanford. Uh, he's the author of two very influential books, Uncaring. He has a, uh, a monthly newsletter to 50,000 people. And he is talking to us from California, from Marin County, just north of where I am. Uh, Robert, uh, Happy New Year. Can you imagine in the, in the, the not-too-distant future, uh, doctors walking around with these Vision Pro devices on their heads? rethinking the idea of, of doctors and medicine and indeed patients? Well, certainly um, going way back, Google Glass that came long before the current uh, versions out of uh, Apple uh, was actually used by doctors to transmit images out of the operating room. But I'm not sure that in terms of providing the care, that virtual is going to be particularly effective. But for training doctors, Imagine if you and your team can go into an operating room and do a procedure uh, beginning to end without actually drawing any blood. And that's the opportunity that a virtual reality might uh, provide. So I can see some uses for it, but I think there's other technology around right now or coming very, very soon that's going to be far more significant. We'll get to those technologies in a second. Uh, your book that was quite controversial, uh, your recent book, which uh, we talked about on the show a couple of years ago, Uncaring How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. What about patients wearing these things, these vision pros that will allow us to think or rethink our bodies, uh, think about 
the shapes of, of what we want, uh, of healthcare, of dieting, of exercise? Could these Vision Pro devices actually revolutionize how we take care of ourselves? To me, they're going to be more, again, tools. You know, the buzzword these days when it comes to generative AI is multimodal. In fact, the article in the New York Times this morning talked about what's about to happen with how video, text are all going to blend and be equivalent based upon what the patient wants or what the individual wants. The written word is going to be equivalent to the opportunity to speak, to have conversation. It's going to become more and more human-like. So absolutely, as a means of connecting the technological brain to the human brain, if the virtual reality tool does that more effectively, that will become a major part, actually both for patients and for doctors, but more for patients, because doctors can visualize many of these things. They've been trained in it for a decade. Uh, I see an era coming up very soon where the patient is going to become a major part of the care delivery process, taking a lot of responsibility for what only physicians do today and to the extent that a virtual reality tool will facilitate that, letting them navigate through the blood vessels of the body or the muscles and the bones, the brain. Those are the kinds of things that if it helps patients to see it better or to begin an exercise program, to eat better, to do all the things that we know will lead to health, absolutely, I can envision it being something that people will latch onto. I think we just don't yet know how applicable it will be. Robert, taking off your, your white coat as a doctor and just thinking of how as, as, as Robert Pearl, not just MD, but citizen of the world, could you imagine putting these devices on? Are they going to alter our ontological sense of the world? Is virtual reality really on the horizon? PJ Cardas, I mean, he's a science fiction writer from Brazil, so... For him, maybe his view is, is rather different from yours. But can you imagine in the not-too-distant future, people walking around with these glasses on, probably not quite as clunky. Most people were rather skeptical of the iPhone when it originally came out. Now, it's almost unimaginable to walk around without an iPhone. Well, again, I think it comes down to the technology itself. I've followed virtual reality now for close to a decade. And so far, I've been disappointed every time I've used it. I mean, it's interesting and it's a tool and it's sort of fun, but I haven't found it to be uh, a true simulation. I knew that it was not real when I was wearing it. Uh, so if this is different, I've heard mixed things about this upcoming product. I have not actually personally used it. I don't know if you have. But well, I don't think anyone has yet because it's, it's only coming out in February and the the press uh, reviews will come out as always with Apple on the day it's released. No, I mean, whether they maybe let you use it in advance since you're a, a leading expert in this area. But I would say it's going to come down to the quality of it. But the idea that virtual reality and regular reality can overlap, I think that is a solid foundation. What I just don't know is how long it will take for that technology really to occur. So it's not just a uh, uh, video game interest and some other aspects of altered reality, but actually is the situation that we face as individuals, as patients, as care delivers. So yeah, I have no problem imagining it. 
On the other hand, I'm not really quite sure why if it's virtual reality, I have to actually leave my house. I can experience virtual reality from inside its confines. We're speaking with Robert Pearl, one of America's leading physicians as a writer, as a thinker, uh, as an author, as a practitioner, uh, the author of Uncaring, a very controversial book. Um, Robert, you, you began this conversation by saying that there were technologies which are more immediate. I know that you've done a lot of writing and thinking on generative AI. How, how do you expect generative AI to change American medicine in 2024? Well, first, as you well know, the current version, whether it's ChatGPT or GPT-4, it's not ready for prime time. We've talked about that on your show before but it's doubling in power every year. And if you do the math, that means that in five years, it'll be 30 times as powerful, and in 10 years, a 1,000 times more powerful. And the human brain just can't understand exponential growth. We saw that during COVID, as viral infections went from 1% and 2% up to 80% very quickly. It takes a long time at the start of that curve and it accelerates very fast. It goes from 50 to 100 in the same amount of time. It goes from one to two. So we have to understand, we're not talking about what exists today, but today gives us a good sense of what it might be like. Got to look past the hallucinations and look past some of the other limitations of the current technology. Um, and I'm actually writing a book right now with ChatGPT. And so I'm very well aware of its limitations. You're but, saying you're writing a book about it or with it? Using with it. it. And I'll tell you more about it in the spring when it comes out. But uh, it's an interesting uh, co-author. And it makes its mistakes, but it provides tremendous insights. But jumping ahead, if you take a version available in a few years, it is going to be able to make a diagnosis as well as a clinician. It's going to be able to follow a chronic disease better than a clinician. And remember, chronic, chronic diseases affect 60% of Americans, accounts for 70% of healthcare costs. I think it will allow not only an empowered patient, but it will allow us to move from pure disease management to health because it will be the coach in our home. It will have to be augmented. I think it'll be a combination of technology and humans but not as we think of it today with the technology being subservient and actually just doing the minor things. It's gonna take certain parts of healthcare. Uh, today, you have to go into an office to get it taken care of and be able to allow you to have it accomplished in the comfort of your home in the same way that you can now plan your travel, hotels, airplanes, tours, that you used to have to go to a travel agent or you could actually manage your financial portfolio the way you had to do it through a human being in the past. Uh, that This day is coming and the real question is going to be how will humans, meaning clinicians, providers of care, patients, interact with it unlike the artificial intelligence, the artificial vision glasses which I think the technology is the limiting factor. Here it's gonna be the humans using generative AI as it evolves, as it will, almost guaranteed over the next five to 10 years. Robert, late last week, um, we did a show with Rafat Ali as one of um, 
the leading journalists in the travel industry. And we had a similar conversation, but in the context of travel, he talked about AI enabling um, enabling the uh, us to get beyond the interface of the search box when it comes to making our travel plans. Is, is it a, a similar interface challenge with AI and traditional search when it comes to healthcare? Well, I don't know if he presented it as a problem or not. It's definitely the solution. I mean, let's just say you make your given well, but the solution is getting beyond the search box, escaping yeah. what he seems to see as the almost the dictatorship of the search box in the web 2.0 age of, of traditional search engines like Google. No, it, it will go beyond it. I mean, that that that's that is its promise. It's not its promise, it already can accomplish that. So if you have diabetes and you go on uh, to a search engine and you click on diabetes, you're going to get a ton of information that will be very general, nothing specific to you. If you put that same into information into a generative AI application, and again, particularly next the next generation will be a big leap forward, um, and you put in a lot of specifics, your age, your uh, family history, your hemoglobin A1C, your blood glucose, medications that you're on, it will give you a very specific, personalized answer about your specific diabetes. And that is impossible to obtain through a search engine today. And in that sense, it's completely the same as you see in travel. It can give you generalized information and in hotels, but if it knows you, and I think the big leap forward, and you're aware, well aware that in the last OpenAI conference, they talked about this, but the use of plugins is going to be major because it's plugins that they allow you to personalize things, to take the data off of your glucometer, to take the information out of your electronic health record, off of your wearable devices. And we've talked about many of these things for a long time, like wearables, and they've never gone anywhere. Why is that? It's not the technology of the wearable. It's that it's had to go through the clinician's office and no doctor wants thousands of pieces of information on patients every day. Generative AI will solve that problem. You may be very well aware that Apple has not been willing to do that on the products it's created. It's basically given you just general health information and then told you to take the information to your doctor. Generative AI will do it, and more importantly than that, there's no way to stop patients from using it, as opposed to these other devices where it can be stopped because they're based on a narrow AI uh, platform. In a generative AI, the universality of data, information, knowledge becomes available to whoever wants to use it. I make the analogy to the telephone. They can regulate the, elect the electrical issues, the uh, risk of fire, et cetera. But how you use your telephone, completely up to you. We're speaking with Robert Pearl, one of uh, American medicine's wisest men, writer, polemicist, uh, practitioner, used to run Kaiser Permanente, which in my view is, at least in my experience, the best uh, healthcare system I've been part of. I want to thank Liberties, um, have nothing to do with the healthcare system, but a very high quality product like Kaiser Permanente, quarterly journal of culture and politics for helping us 
bring such high quality guests as Robert Pearl. We're going to run a short feature on liberties and then we'll be back with Robert to talk more AI and healthcare. So don't go away anyway. This show is good for your health. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Robert Pearl, the author of Uncaring and one of America's leading visionary doctors, thinkers, writers, polemicists. Robert, in the first part of the show, we talked about, or you talked about LLMs, uh, like OpenAI, large language models, and how are they going to change everything? I wonder when it comes to medicine, though, whether we're going to get a narrowing, more of a specialization. The New York Times is suing uh, OpenAI because it claims it's stealing its data. Axel Springer, a, a German media company, has done a deal with OpenAI, perhaps to create narrower models. How's this going to work in, in medicine? Do you expect uh, there to be narrower versions of LLM, smaller language models, which will work for medicine? As you know, when it comes to generative AI, now we're, we're not talking about narrow AI, we're talking about generative AI. It's only a question of what information you provide it. And if the information is not provided to pre-train it on, then obviously it can't use that information. So as an example, the first release uh, only went through, I think, this fall of 2022. We've now moved into the spring of 23. But information that came out in the fall of 23 isn't going to be available. I don't really see a narrow application being used at least through the um, at least through the tools of the patient providing information into the system, and then out of that being able to extract. Well, let me thing. let me rephrase it. Maybe my my question was a bit vague. Is it conceivable that a a large insurance network company like Kaiser Permanente would do a deal with OpenAI so that? they would give OpenAI or an equivalent LLM all their data, which most of it is uh, most of it is 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 behind walls, and working on an AI that is more exact when it comes to something as important as as, as medical information. Well, the information that needs to be sub entered into it as an example would be individual patients, uh, data, all their laboratory work, everything you found in the electronic health record. And that's why I was mentioning earlier the plugins. That's how you would accomplish that. You obviously would need to make sure that the patient wanted you to do it. OpenAI would have to make certain that no one else could access it. The training conceivably could be based upon, you know, Kaiser's 12 million uh, subscribers today in a general way but it obviously couldn't compromise the privacy and security of any one individual. Yeah, I mean, all, all that data would, of course, be anonymized. So it, it, you wouldn't right. know who was suffering from what. But most of the publicly accessible data, which the, 
the current LLMs are training on um, hasn't been in any way verified for, for, for medical information, has it? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of journals, textbooks. That's. I mean, it's not verified because it's, you know, everything's open to interpretation but it's peer-reviewed it's coming off of uh, yeah but let's take the example of vaccines which are enormously politically controversial it's increasing large number of supposed scientists politicians people on social media who claim that vaccines are bad for you who's to determine in an ai system whether or not that information is included in an llm the parameters, and as you know, there's over a billion of them. These are the little rules that impact how the information is used and prioritized. That's what determines them. And, you know, I don't know what OpenAI has used for its parameters. It hasn't told me. But it hasn't told say, anyone, Robert. That's the problem. Well, that's so, why no, they're being sued by everybody. Well, two things. For the, the people who entered it know do they prioritize, as an example, peer-reviewed journals over non-peer-reviewed? More recent information out of less uh, used. University information out of non-university. Uh, and remember, everything you're describing right now happens in a search engine. I mean, as you well know, there's a lot of controversy, social media, Google, etc., about what gets posted, not posted. And for the most part, everything is available and it can be manipulated it's actually less of a problem in a generative AI. It doesn't go away. But by the way, it's also true for everyone, clinicians included, who get to read information out of so-called scientists that may uh, lead in the incorrect uh, direction. So I think that, that that situation is not that different, but it's the parameters that determine it. Every journal has a rating that says how often it is cited by other experts in a published, in a published uh, manuscript. Yeah, yeah I, I take your point, but when you have an AI now that will talk to us and increasingly be hard to distinguish from a human being, we humans are much more gullible and susceptible. So it's one thing to go to a website and scratch your head and think, where's this information coming from? It's quite another to go to OpenAI and be able to talk to a system which will eventually have uh, human bots that seem indistinguishable from doctors and actually think to oneself, should I trust this? Should I, should I believe what this bot is telling us? When, when we go into a, 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 doctor's, um, a doctor's office, we have an element of trust. Sometimes that trust isn't justified, as you've noted. Well, as you well know, there's a, a senior leader in Florida right now who is elected and is a is an equivalent of a surgeon general who has a lot of information coming out that's not. So should people in Florida listen to him? So I, this is not a new problem. People go to TikTok and they believe the people they see there. They haven't been vetted. This is a just a bigger issue to me than specific to a generative AI. But I want to double back for a second to the point you made earlier about the New York Times suit and a bunch of other people. This is just about uh, copyright access. And by the way, it's not that different than in the recently resolved writer's strike relative to movies and uh, streaming services. This is just a question of should OpenAI have to pay to be able to download 
all the New York Times information since it was created into its system. Uh, from a technological standpoint, that's an easy thing to do. The question is, should they have to pay for it? And I think there's going to be a resolution around that. As you well know, OpenAI is now a $100 billion company owned by Microsoft, which is a far larger company. So this is going to have to be battled in the courts and debated back and forth. But it's purely a question of economic benefit and economic expectations, legal requirements, may even go to the Supreme Court by the time it's going to be ruled. That's not about misinformation. That's going to be using, I'll say, to the best of the people who created it, accurate information. Although I'm sure there are medical writers also want to be reimbursed for their wisdom. Um, if, if one of these AIs began to write like Robert Pearl, you may be troubled. Actually, I want to end the conversation and get some insights about your experience writing with OpenAI. Uh, this time last year, Robert, if you remember, you were on the show talking about the real, what you called the existential medical crisis in, in US healthcare. Is, is how the system itself is so resistant to innovation. It's rather like the education system. I think education and healthcare are the institutional hearts of, of the American malaise. Um, has anything changed in a year? Is the healthcare system as resistant to this AI and all these new technologies, which you know better than anyone, can 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 really radically reform for better or for that matter worse the the healthcare system well the healthcare system has gotten worse since then and i base that upon the data we've seen the life expectancy continue to drop we've seen the costs go up significantly we've seen the government projecting a three trillion dollar increase in expense over the next seven years Burnout has risen to 60 to 70% of clinicians. 71,000 doctors left the profession last year. I mean, I can have a litany of examples on the negative side, and I can't come up with a single positive one outside of maybe some of the weight loss drugs, which I think have some potential if the prices can be brought way back in. Uh, in terms of the technology, I think what you have to differentiate is individual doctors from large organizations. I've talked to hundreds of individual physicians who are using this tool to the benefit of their patients. I've talked to hundreds of patients who are using this for their own health, recognizing, as we said earlier, that the current version is not ready for prime time. It's the equivalent of a toy compared to what's gonna be here in certainly 10 years and maybe five years. But I think there's an overall recognition. And you mentioned academia, uh, education. It's the same thing there. Mm. Look at the early generative AI. How are we going to keep this out of our systems? How are we going to stop students from using it? And I think slowly people are recognizing you can't. It's like trying to get them to stop using the iPhone that you mentioned earlier. And now I think at least the dialogue is starting to shift. How do we help them to use it more reliably and safer? But uh, what's unclear to me is going to be whether the necessary change, the necessary improvement is going to come from inside the healthcare system or from the outside. The one thing I will guarantee viewers and listeners, it's going to come. It's going to come. The question is when. And, and I think the equivalent with the, particularly the university system is like uh, healthcare is becoming more and more expensive and of worse and worse quality, and of course, more and more controversial. So let's 
let's just think 2024, Robert. Yeah, yeah. I love having you on the show. You'll certainly be on within the year, but let's say you're back in January of 2025. What conceivably, realistically, you're, you're not a dreamer, you're not a science fiction writer. You understand the way the, the system works. You understand what can realistically be done within a year. What would, what reforms, what's the best possible scenario for changing, beginning to change the American medical system in 2024? I'm a major proponent, and maybe it's because I teach, as you say, in the Stanford School of Medicine and Business, that unless we align the incentives, we will not see the change happen from inside the healthcare system. And to me, the biggest problem is the fee-for-service approach to reimbursement. The more you do, the more you get paid. If you actually have a complication, you often get paid twice. There's no relationship to the value created for the patient and moving to prepayment. I like the word capitation because it's sort of the most comprehensive view of- Yeah, it's a chilling word. I mean, basically what you're saying, Robert, and correct me if I'm interpreting you wrong, is it's almost in a doctor's interest to do a bad job because they get more work. I think it's a bit cynical. I mean, you could, <laughs> economists would agree with you. But for that, you know, if, if you do have a doctor whose only interest is making more money, then they'll keep on bringing the customer back. Yeah, I think most doctors are have some mission and purpose in them. But right now, the system is rigged against them. If they do the right thing and they invest a lot of time and keep people healthy and better manage chronic disease, avoid heart attacks and strokes, they're penalized. And as Charlie, you know, Charlie Munger, who recently died, said, Tell me your incentives, and I'll tell you the outcomes you're going to get. It's held in every industry. Medicine is no different. So I would hope in 2024 that at least we'd see enough people trying to do that, that we would at least have some paths forward that others could follow, so people blazing the trail. And I am absolutely certain in 2024 that the next version of ChatGPT that comes out possibly the one from Google, although um, I'm a little, a bit more doubtful of that for reasons we talked about on some other show, but maybe some other gender of AI forms is going to be dramatically better than today, twice as good. And when that happens, people are going to start to find ever more uses for that technology. When they go to the doctor, they'll be far more knowledgeable. When they have problems in the middle of the night, they'll be far more expert the difference between a generative AI and a browser on a uh, computer web search is that the browser gives you a lot of knowledge. Generative AI will give you a lot of expertise. So if the system is rigged against ethical doctors um, or doctors who do a good job, is the system also rigged against healthy patients? Is the system in the interest of people who firstly, don't look after themselves very well and then abuse their privileges when they come to doctors and spend hours and hours in the doctor's rooms wasting their time? I think it's not rigged against healthy patients. I think it's rigged against poor patients. I think if you look at the outcome, what you see is that if you don't have excellent insurance and great coverage, it's almost impossible to get good care. Everyone says you have insurance. Remember, 
we had 95 million Americans on Medicaid last year, and none of them got the health care that you or I would demand for ourselves and for our families. So I think that's who it's rigged against. And I think the incentives create uh, reasons why physicians will prioritize those who have better insurance, better coverage ahead of those who don't. And in a time when there's uh, an insufficient number of doctors and inability to provide all the care that America requires, uh, the people who move to the front of the line are those who simply have better ability to pay. Is that the biggest warning also about AI, this issue of being rigged against poor patients? It, it happened with media and information, is if you've got money, you subscribe to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or these other learned weeklies, professional weeklies, and you're probably better informed than you've ever been. And everybody else gets all this free information, which is mostly propaganda or trash. Are we, with this new AI system, in danger of creating a, 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 a two-leveled medical system where the poor rely on AIs which aren't properly regulated and often unreliable or average and certainly not able to identify them? And the wealthy people like you and I will continue to work with real doctors who are good at their jobs and will maintain our lifespan and everyone else is going to die at a younger and younger age. I, it's, it's hard to predict the future in medicine, but impossible to predict it in the future of politics. And much of this will come out of the government. The nice part about generative AI is that it costs less than a latte a week. So, of course, less, less than a uh, uh, pack of cigarettes a week. Whatever, whatever we heard that, uh, Robert, we heard that about information back in when I was a, I had my own startups in the late 90s, early 2000s, that everyone would get more information and news would be democratized. And look what's happened. Why won't the same be true of AI and medicine? It won't be true. Well, it would be true if we were back then because getting the access to it, the Wi-Fi access, the broadband access, the computers themselves. But on the other hand, right now, what we know is that every American, just about statistically every American, has an iPhone. And this information uh, can come through the iPhone. I have ChatGPT on my iPhone as well as my computer. So I have the ability to access it. Uh, I'm hoping that it actually would be provided that everyone in Medicaid will get a free subscription to a generative AI application to the best that there is because it's less expensive. We're not talking about, you know, hundreds of dollars every month. And to the extent that it prevents chronic disease, better helps people manage it, actually diminishes the demand on the traditional healthcare system. I think it's going to be in everyone's interest. But Andrew, I never count on government to do the right thing. I've just seen. Uh, right. Yeah. And we know, uh, Robert, there's no such thing as, as free. I'm sure Sam Altman spends half his life on the phone to Washington, D.C., getting them, convincing them to give out, quote unquote, free chat GPT interfaces on healthcare, which the government would actually pay for. Lots to discuss. We'll have you back on the show, certainly uh, by the end of 2024. Finally, Robert, you noted that you're writing a book with chat gpt what's the book about um the book is about the what i call the healthcare 4.0 uh 
Uh, healthcare 1.0 was sort of 1970 to 2000. Tremendous advances. We invented CT, MRI, uh, transplantation, heart surgery, total joint replacement, cataract repair, a whole litany of things that advanced uh, the li life expectancy by a decade. Healthcare 2.0 was the EHR, which has failed to deliver on its promise. 3.0 was connecting patients through virtual tools to be able to get the healthcare that they need, essentially through browsers. It too has failed to move the needle. But 4.0 is this opportunity to recognize that if we can use generative AI to empower patients, to allow them to take more responsibility, to allow them to be able to better prevent disease, then we can start to move into an era where we have better quality, convenient access, and greater affordability because the technology will allow inefficiencies to be taken out. Uh, in the book, um, I offer my thoughts. ChatGPT offers its thoughts. Uh, we start with the differentiation between the different eras of um, the past. We look at the opportunities to be able to address specific problems. We look at the challenges, privacy, security, bias, et cetera. And then we end with an important focus on leadership because without leadership, you and I can both agree it would be terrific to have this, but it never will occur. And as part of that, looking at the retail giants who have, they, if the leaders- Yeah, we haven't even mentioned the retail. They will. There's so many moving parts. We'll have to have, when's the book out, Robert? Uh, aiming for uh, later in the spring, probably end of April. Or oh, we'll have to have you back. And 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 finally, when it comes to leadership, who was leading who? Was it Robert Pearl leading the Chat GPT or Chat GPT leading Robert Pearl? You'll have to ask that to Chat GPT.